Now, I guess there are two primary things that cause us to doubt that God loves us. Our sin and experiencing suffering. We've been looking over the last few weeks how our sin, our failure to live the way that we know we should, to live the way we know God wants us to, can cause us to doubt God loves us. We can feel, why would God love someone like me? Sometimes we can't even love ourselves. We feel that God can't love us because we've failed. But also our our experience of suffering can cause us to doubt God loves us. Maybe we feel that God doesn't love us because he's failed. Uh, We're just in a, a period of life where there seem to be a lot of people to pray for who are going through tragic suffering. We're going to the funeral of a young lad, 19-year-old, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, When we were in Exeter, his family were friends with ours. Um, Peter shared birthday parties with Hugh and Bryn. And two weeks ago, he committed suicide. Peter committed suicide after a long battle with depression. His mum knows the Lord Jesus, but we're going to his funeral. And experiences like that rightly cause people to ask, well, how can you believe that God loves you? You see, we doubt God loves us because of our sin within, we fail, and the suffering that comes from without, we think God has failed. And Romans chapter 8 is really the Apostle Paul's answer to those doubts, the doubt that God could love us. It comes in this great letter we've been studying over really the past few months, as Paul has written to a group of Christians in different sort of house churches in Rome and around AD 57. And he's been outlining the glorious message of God's love for his people and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to Romans chapter 8, uh, we find, as has already been mentioned this morning, uh, a passage that tells us what it is to live the normal Christian life. It's a passage that mentions the Spirit of God more than any other in the Bible. And the normal Christian life starts with getting up in the morning, knowing in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned by God in any way. And the normal Christian life is is going to bed every night, knowing Romans 8.39 is true, that nothing, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're not condemned. You're never condemned by God if you're in Christ Jesus. Nothing, no one in the whole of creation can separate you from God's love if you're in Christ Jesus. And in between, between getting up and going to bed, there's a lot of groaning in Romans 8. It's the normal Christian life. So we're going to look at it in three sections. Next week, we're going to look at suffering with the Spirit. Then lastly, we're going to look at certainty by the Spirit. But today, we're going to look at what it is to live a life empowered by the Spirit. And the first thing we see is we have a new freedom, a new freedom. You see, Romans 7 ended with Paul crying out this. Look at verse 24 of Romans 7. He said, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, Paul was living in Romans 7, trapped between knowing what he should do, what he wanted to do, but being unable to do it, unable to be the man he wanted to be. And he hits Romans 8.1, knowing that Jesus rescues him from that life. 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't think there are any sweeter words in the Bible. God doesn't condemn you. A lot of the time we condemn ourselves. 
We look at our lives and they're not what we dreamed of. We look at our bodies and they're not what we want them to be. We look at our relationships and they're not very valentiny. We look at God's law and we're not even close to keeping it. We condemn ourselves. But God says to us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever you've done this morning, however you feel about yourself, whatever others think of you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's not simply God turning a blind eye and and ignoring the things we've done wrong. It's that he's changed our status forever with him. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. Because through, or literally again, in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Uh, We've seen in Romans over the the past few weeks that this is uh, what we're like on the inside. Uh, This is our normal selves. We are people who have sin at the heart of our beings. What I'm doing now is I'm just displaying my inside on the outside. Can can you imagine if when you came to church, everyone could see you as you really are? No, you can't because you wouldn't come to church, would you? I wouldn't. This is my sin, my inside on the outside. And Romans says we are all like this. We are by nature those who live for self. We reject God. And therefore, when God's law comes into our lives, verse 3, it's powerless to change us. You see, at the heart of me, I want to live for myself. I want to deny God's right to rule over me. And therefore, the law on the outside of me, it doesn't change the inside of me. It cannot do that. This is when Paul talks in verse 2, 3 about the flesh, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. If you want to understand what the flesh is, that's just you, your sinful self your desire to disobey God. And law can't change that because it can't penetrate our hearts. It can't change our desires. And Paul's shown us that that God's law is good. It's not that that God wants to wreck our lives by making a, a law that turns us into those who have no fun. No, God's law is good. At its simplest level, it calls us to love God and to love other people. And what's bad about that? It calls us to honor our parents and be faithful and kind in our marriages. It calls us to respect other people's property and to be content in the lives that we have. It is a good law, but it's powerless to change us. Now, we're condemned by the law without. But what does Paul say? Look down at verse 3 again. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. God has acted. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was fully human like you and me. In our likeness, but with one very important difference. He did not sin. He fulfilled God's law. He lived a perfect life. And therefore, as he went to the cross, says Paul, God condemned our sinful flesh in him, in Christ Jesus. And so, so if you imagine, here is Jesus' perfect life, and I am now in Christ. 
So as Christ goes to the cross with his perfect life, he bears in himself my sinful life. And as he dies, I die in him, the old God rebelling, God hating me. And so now I am clothed in Christ's perfect life. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Because as God looks upon me, what does he see? He sees the perfect life of his son, the one who kept his law and took the punishment that I deserve for disobeying his law at the cross. So when I go to bed at night, having failed to live for Christ during the day, what do I look like? My status before God is perfect as Christ. When I get up in the morning, what is my status before God? I am not condemned. I am perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the day, when I constantly fail to be the man God calls me to be, what is my status before God? I am perfect in Christ Jesus. I am not condemned. But you see, it's not just that, that God has worked for us in Christ, so that now I am righteous before him. No, Paul goes on, look at verse 3 again. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, I'm not condemned by the law on the outside because Christ is for me at the cross, but also I'm not condemned on the inside, locked into a life of constant failure, Because Christ is in me by his spirit. Christ is for me at the cross. Christ is now in me by his spirit. And so he is changing me and empowering me to live day by day and become more and more like him. You see, that means, secondly, we have a new future. A new future. There there are two different ways we could be living. Look at verse 5 with me. Here are the two ways you might be living your life this morning. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. You see, either we'll be living for ourselves, for for the flesh, for our priorities, our loves, uh, what we want, uh, a life ruled by you. But but God says the destiny of that life uh, is death. Uh, Not just physical death, but eternal death being punished by God. That's the future of a life lived for self. Because according to verse 7, you set yourselves up against God. You can't keep his law. In fact, you're incapable of pleasing him. Because you, you can't change your own heart that's set against God in rebellion. But when God's spirit is at work in you, you have a totally different mindset. Uh, What does it say? The spirit brings life and peace. You know that you're at peace with God, in relationship with him. You know your life is lived out uh, in his love. And so Paul says in verse 9, you, this is to the, the Christians in Rome, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if everyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. In other words, there's a a transfer. Once God's Spirit comes to live in you, you have a totally different mindset about life. You want to live out a life in relationship with God. Do you see, by the way, who has the Spirit of God in verse 9? Sometimes Christians can worry that um, there's sort of two classes of Christians, uh, those who have the Holy Spirit and those who don't. 
Or maybe they think, oh, well, I, I've sort of got the Holy Spirit, but, but I need a, a second dose or I need a bit more of him. But, but according to verse 9, says Paul, if you have Jesus, you have his spirit. There's only one type of Christian. And if the spirit of God is dwelling in you, well, then you have an extraordinary future. See, the future lived for, for self for, by the flesh is death. But the future, if you have God's spirit, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because his Spirit lives in you. Oh, I can guarantee your body will die. We live in this sin-cursed world, says Paul, but, but actually because God's Spirit lives within you, that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you from the dead to enjoy physical life with him forever. It's a a brutal contrast. But it's true, isn't it? Without Christ, people basically live lives themselves. They don't do what God says. They don't care about it. And death is their destiny. With Christ, his spirit in us means we enjoy life and peace with God. We know we're loved by him day by day. And in the end, his spirit will raise us to live with him. So death for us, it's not the end. It's the beginning of what we are created to be forever. So so we've seen that we've got this new freedom. Every moment of every day, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. God looks on us, and we have the status of his son. There's nothing you can do to change that about yourself if you're in Christ Jesus, because there's nothing that you did to make yourself like that. It was all done by God. God did it. And therefore, you have a new future. If you're living by the Spirit, your future isn't a life of God-hating disobedience that leads to death. Your future is a life of peace and a life of love that leads in the end to resurrection life. Because the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit who dwells in you. That is who you are. But but what does that feel like? What what does it feel like to have that? Does that mean we get up each morning and, and skip through the day? Is that what it should feel like, the Christian life? Well, no, actually. Because Paul says there's a new fight. A new fight. Look at, look at verse 12. Here's the therefore. This is the result of what we've just been looking at. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. Literally, we are debtors. But we're not a debtor to the flesh, to our, our sinful selves. Remember, they died with Jesus at the cross. No, we're debtors to the Spirit. We have a duty to live according to our new manager, the Spirit of God who dwells in us. Now, uh, Manchester United have been doing a lot better recently. They've won something like 11 out of their 12 ma- matches. That's because they got a new manager, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. Out went miserable Marino, and in came jolly Oli. The result has been noticeable, especially with Paul Pogba, their, uh, their Addisnip, £89 million French midfielder. Now, now Paul is playing with a a new liberated freedom. 
People say it's because Mourinho was a bit of a, a hard taskmaster. He was demanding. He didn't relate to the players that well. Whereas Jolly Ollie, he gets on with them. They have a new sense of freedom in their playing. They're, they're enjoying football again. Now, it would be ridiculous, wouldn't it, for, for Pogba, Pogba to go around to Mourinho's house to, to knock on the door and to say, look, I'd like to play football your way again, you say? I mean, ridiculous for one, it didn't work. Secondly, it made him miserable. And thirdly, he's not the manager anymore. Jolly Ollie's the manager. Well, what Paul says, it'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it, for you to go back to your selfish self and say, oh, come on, you run my life. For one, it doesn't work. Two, it in the end makes you miserable. And three, you're not your manager anymore. God's spirit is your manager within you. And his life is a life of, of peace and of life. And so verse 13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's your old life. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. See, here's the fight. What does our new manager say to do? He says, actively, that's the word, actively, day by day, murder your misdeeds. Put to death your selfishness. Stamp out your sin. It used to be called the mortification of the flesh. Isn't that a great term? You had to mortify your flesh. It's literally doing battle with the selfishness within us. And it feels like a battle. Now, this isn't masochism. This isn't sort of enjoying beating yourself up emotionally or physically. Uh, This isn't asceticism. This isn't assuming that, you know, having fun is bad, so we have to be teetotal, never go on holiday and wear a hair shirt. It's not those things. No, this is continuously killing the wrong attitudes and wrong actions in our lives by the Spirit. That a, a great philosopher, Homer Simpson, said this, if you really want something in this life, you have to work for it. Now quiet, they're about to announce the lottery numbers. And I think we can have a Homer attitude for living for Jesus. We sort of sit on the sofa, waiting for God to change me and feel happier about life. But Paul says, no. Now, the Christian life is a fight. It's not going to be comfortable. Life with the the Spirit of God is not about cruise control. It's much more like an exercise regime. You sort of know it's good for you. You feel better for it. But it's hard work getting off the couch to run 5K, getting out to the gym, putting on the trainers when it's cold and wet outside. See, that's how it feels. Life by the power of God's Spirit is hard work. But it is by the Spirit. He's the one who gives you the desire and the determination and the discipline to reject sin. And in the end, killing sin in your life is to truly live. Did you see that at the end of verse 13? You will live. John Stott brilliantly puts it like this. He says, there is a kind of life that leads to death. That's the life of self. But there is a kind of death that leads to life. That's putting sin to death in your body leads to true life. But because, isn't it it sin that ruins our lives day by day? I mean, we lie, or we get angry, and and therefore we ruin our relationships. We indulge in self-pity, so so we sit around, maybe on our own at home, thinking people don't like us. We act as though we're the center of the universe. So so we get irritated by anything and everything that gets in our way, from, from traffic to weather to people. But, but actually, when we murder those attitudes, 
while we say speak gentle words of, of truth and love, we actually find our, our relationships are, are better, they're more beautiful, they work. When we realize that we're greatly loved by God, so we don't need to sit in self-pity, it actually draws us out of ourselves and we're, we're enabled to love others. When we see that, the, that Jesus is the center of the universe and not us, we begin to have the freedom to show the kindness he showed. And actually we find a greater contentment and joy in life. You see, murdering our misdeeds brings us true life. And the thing is, as we enjoy that true life, we do it lastly as a member of God's family. You see, we have a new freedom. You cannot be condemned if you're in Christ Jesus because God treats you as his son. You have a new future. Your life is one lived by the spirit of God of peace and life through death forever. You have a new fight. God's spirit in you it is wanting you to put to death all that is bringing harm and pain and difficulty to your life, all your selfishness. And you do it because you have a new father. You have a new father. Look at verse 14 with me. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Actually, here literally it's the sons of God, and that's important. Verse 16 and verse 17, it's a different word. That's children, little children there, but this is sons. Now, now some people say all people are children of God, but, but that's not actually the case. You see, Paul uses this word sons very deliberately, because in the Old Testament, God's people Israel were called his son. So Exodus 4.22, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And how did God lead his people by the Spirit back then? Well, God led Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery to freedom, through the desert for 40 years, where they were tested to see if they'd be obedient. The same thing happens to God's one true son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we read in Matthew's gospel, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And how does the Spirit of God lead his son? Well, 4-1... Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Do you remember how long for? Forty days. Forty years, Israel led. Forty days, Jesus led by the Spirit. And so to be led by the Spirit is not necessarily to know whether I should live in Chessington or Chelsea or whether I should be a teacher or a travel writer. It's not about details of my life. It's to be led by God into testing to see if we are obedient. It's been led into the battle to live for him day by day. And it's a great thing to be a son, even if you're a woman. Because look at verse 15 with me. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's a picture of a, a fearful, a, a terrifying master and living under that sort of master as a slave. You just don't know how you're going to be treated, whether you're going to be rejected or punished. Life is, is ruled constantly by the fear of not being good enough. And that might be the way some people, maybe even some of us this morning, feel about life and relationship with God. 
We, we feel constantly afraid. We're, we're not good enough. But, but Jesus says, that actually is not your life if you trust in me. You've received the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption to sonship. You see, adoption in our society very sadly has come to be seen as second best. I think Christians actually should be at the forefront of adoption. Uh, I know a, a couple uh, we know in Lancashire who actually chose to adopt a Down syndrome little boy before having their own birth children. It was a conscious decision. Not because of fertility, but because they wanted to show the gospel by doing that. And then they had their birth children. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And adoption in, in Roman society was a great honor. You see, the landowner chose a boy to be his heir, to inherit all his riches. And God has adopted us into his family. We're in his son, Jesus. That's our status. That's why Paul uses the word sons about men and women. It's because we're in Jesus. It's not about our gender. It's about our status as those who are now his heirs. And so we don't know a terrible slave master. We don't live in fear because we have a loving father. So we cry out. Verse 15 again. (coughs) And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We we dare to call God Daddy, Dad. That's that sort of intimacy involved in that word. It's actually the the way Jesus addresses his father, who is now our father, because we're adopted in Christ as his sons. But but do you know that that cry, Abba, Father, it is a cry. It's, It's not a sort of cuddly word. It's a call of anguish. Actually, the, the, the word for cry out there is a word, kradzomen. It's a bit sort of onomatopoeic, isn't it? You can hear what it sounds like. Kradzomen. You can see what you're doing when you kradzomen, can't you? You are crying out. And when you see when Jesus called his Father in heaven, Abba Father, you'll know why. Did you know when he called God Abba Father? Matthew fourteen thirty six, In the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It was when the son was led into obedience, obedience to death, even on a cross. And in the the battle to obey, he cried out, Abba, Father, I long to please you. I long to do your will, but it's so hard. But, but not what I want, what you want. And that, that's how we cry with the Spirit. That, that's the cry of verse 16. The Spirit testify, himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. You see, as the Spirit testifies in us that we cry out, Lord, I want to obey you, but it is so Hard. Everything within me just wants to live for myself. And I know you've loved me in Christ and I'm not condemned and I'm your precious son and I I want to obey you, but it's so hard. Abba, Father. 
there's a great tragedy, you know. I think a lot of people have taken the cry of Abba Father and the idea of being led by the Spirit and made it about us, about my relationships and, and what's best for me and tell me about how I can feel better about me. Whereas actually being led by the Spirit is all about Jesus. It's being made more like Him. It's killing the me in my life and being led to, to trust Him. See, being, being led by the Spirit is not really about knowing whom I should marry. It's about, in the midst of marriage, putting to death self so you love your wife as Christ loves the church. And it's not knowing about... about what job you should do. It's in the midst of work, being led by the Spirit, so you don't think that your job provides you status, but the fact you're a child of God does. And it's not, it's not knowing you know, where you should live or, or whether you should move to a nicer house, but, but it's, it's being led by the Spirit so that you, you somehow manage to care about the people around you and whether they know the love of God as you do. That, that's crying out, Abba, Father. Day by day we cry that cry, don't we? And as we cry that, as we long to be more like our Lord Jesus, as we long to to live a life that honors our Father more, it's a wonderful sign. Do you see why in verse 17? Now if we're children, it's a a word for little children. This isn't sort of word for the the big oik (laughs) in their late teens. Hello, Dad. This is a word for a little child you'd scoop up in your arms. Now, if if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, we've been adopted to, to be God's precious children. That's why we cry out to please our Father. And the result is we are heirs heirs with the Lord Jesus. What is it that the Lord Jesus is going to inherit? The Lord Jesus is going to inherit the whole of creation. We're going to rule over the whole of a perfected new creation with our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, forever. Heirs with him. I was around my uncles for lunch this week. My father died five years ago. And so my uncle is probably sort of the the head of the family. He's 85 years old. And I think I'm his next of kin. I guess I am, because as I was sitting in the house, he was saying, so uh, would you like the dining room table when I go? It's a bit embarrassing, that conversation, isn't it? Yeah, kick the bucket, Gwyn. I like the look of that table. And then, you know, I don't know how you do that. How do you name and claim the furniture of someone who's already alive in the room with you? Seems a bit brutal, but I had a go at it. And the... um, The other thing was that he produced, he produced a family tree. Yeah. Now, I can tell you now, my grandfather was a tailor in Manchester. My great-grandfather was a tailor in Manchester. And my great-great-great-grandfather was a tailor in Manchester. But for some reason, my family really want to prove that we're very Welsh. So my uncle produces this enormous family tree that traces it back. He's got this line going back and tracing me back to Owen Glendower, Prince of Wales, and Llewellyn the Great. Apparently, I've got more right to call myself Prince of Wales than Charles. It's brilliant. I, I should be inheriting the whole of Wales. I just hadn't realized it yet. I am in Owen, in Flewellyn. Well, Paul is saying here, look, you are in Christ. You're an heir with him. You're going to have everything that he has. 
if indeed we share in his sufferings and all that we almost share in his glory. That, that's the road Jesus walked, suffering to glory. The man who loved people like no one else has ever loved people was hated by the world for it. And if we live lives that love Jesus and love other people, well, if we will willingly identify with him, we will be hated by the world for it. We will suffer. But, but glory is the future. Richard Dawkins, the atheist, quoted um, the American writer Mark Twain in, in the paper a little while ago. He said this, I was dead for billions of years before I was born and suffered not the slightest inconvenience. In other words, he's saying, it's God's fault if this is the world of suffering he's made. Well, before I came into it, life was fine. But what God says is, you're going to be alive for billions of years after you have died. And suffering, then it will seem to you like not the slightest inconvenience. You see, this is the normal Christian life. It's a life of a new freedom. No one can condemn you. No one can condemn you if you're in Christ Jesus because God doesn't condemn you. You can't even condemn yourself. It's a life of a new future. It's a life lived by the Spirit that is about peace with God and life forever with Him. It's a life, though, with a new fight. The Spirit of God living in you means that you've got to put to death to mortify your flesh, to kill those things that are actually killing the joy in your life. Disobedience to God and distress and unlove with others. And it's a life with a new father, a father who's adopted you into his family at the cost of his own son, a father who grants you all the riches that he gives to his son, a father who you can cry to in the battle to live so that you might be more like his son. A father, yes, who you'll suffer for, but a father who will eventually take you home to a future far better than you can imagine. And next week, next week we'll see how we wait for that future. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, please, in your great mercy, write these truths upon our heart. With those of us here today who feel condemned, who maybe even are condemning ourselves, we know there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. For those of us who are tempted to live by the flesh, please, in dwelling spirit, would you open our eyes to our sin and would you strengthen us to put to death the misdeeds of the body that we might truly live. For those of us who feel the battle intensely, oh, our Father in heaven, please help us to cry out to you, Abba, Father, and know the strength of the Spirit of Jesus within us. For those of us whose suffering is great, please would we know that we are children of God, heirs with Christ. Our future is certain with him, and with that strengthen us in the present, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Oh,